Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Well, I walked into a Home Depot about two weeks before Thanksgiving, and to my horror, they were playing Christmas music. This is two weeks before Thanksgiving. And I said, really, really two weeks before Thanksgiving? Even those who listen to Star 99, some of you listen to Star 99, one of the Christian radio stations, they've been playing Christmas music for quite a while now. Now, I refuse to listen to Christmas music before December 1st. I will not listen to it. I don't fire up the Josh Groban Christmas station on Pandora. I refuse to consciously listen or sing along with any music in the stores, and I won't tune into stations that are playing it on the radio. Now, part of the reason that I wage this very personal, very quiet protest is that I don't want to wear the songs out in my mind before December 10th. See, when December 10th comes, I want to just be getting into the songs because I really, really love Christmas music. I love the classic hymns sung by, like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir who do it best. Sorry, but they just do it best. I love Nat King Cole singing the Christmas song. And of course, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. See, that's a part of me. It's a part of my soul. When I was a kid, my father would play Crosby's Merry Christmas album so many times that years later, it came on the radio one time, my kids were little, and uh, I started singing along with one of the songs that they were playing. Not only did I know all the words, but I knew every pause, every lilt, every modulation in his voice, and my kids were looking at me like, wow, you know... Are you special, clairvoyant? Do you, how, do you, how do you know he's going to sing it just, he's going to go up and do the little things with his voice and stuff like that. They thought I was really, really special, but I wasn't. I just listened to it a thousand times when I was a kid. Now, I knew when I was young, when I heard that album played on the record player, which was the size of half the wall, and we started singing the first Noel and Angels We Have Heard in High End Church uh, in December, I knew Christmas was right around the corner. Now, to me, those were the original Christmas songs, as far as I was concerned. But you know what? They weren't. In fact, it wasn't even close. Now, over the next three weeks, and right into our three Christmas services, three Christmas Eve services, we're going to be looking at four songs, or what became songs, from the Scriptures itself. Now, they were penned by four persons, in one case, a group, that centered specifically on the Christmas story. Now, some of the authors you've heard of before, others, meh, maybe not, or maybe in passing. But unlike some of the songs that we sing today, some of the Christmas songs, they weren't light, mindless sort of happy tunes, but they were filled with absolute, exquisite meaning. Yet most of us, most of us have never really even heard them before. Really, we haven't. Now, let me ask you something couple of questions. Do you have any expectations at all concerning this season for you or for your family? You've already said it. You have too much to do, right? What am I going to get so-and-so? You know, I'm looking at my father. I'm going, 
What do you get an 87-year-old man? I mean, really, what do you get him? I, I can't get him sweets. He's got diabetes. I want to go buy him a shirt, a tie. I don't even know what to get him. I don't know what to begin. So you start thinking in your mind. And, and you're thinking like that with people around you, right? We're going to get this. And then it's too much money. And right now it's not a good time and this and that and everything else. And so the season becomes one of those seasons where you go, you know, it shouldn't be like this. I know it shouldn't be like this. But it always is, Right? It always is. It doesn't become a season that really excites you. For some, it becomes a season that kind of depresses us, right? We all know that's not the way it should be. We all know that. So let me ask you, how's this year going to be different? How will this year be different? What do you want God to do this Christmas? What internal, what external changes do you want to see in your life and the lives of those around you. Now, if there are any songs we should be singing this Christmas, songs that are going to instruct, songs that are going to encourage, maybe even gently chastise and rebuke towards making me better, these are the songs. These are the ones that we really should know. Because if they ever become a part of us, if they really become a part of our souls, if these songs become our songs, we will sing a different life melody. I'm convinced of it. Though the lyrics and melody of Bing Crosby's White Christmas long ago found their way into my heart, I got to admit, I am not significantly different because of it. I really don't live my life differently because of that song. But if these songs became a part of me, I could not help but be different. So over the next four weeks, let's together learn to sing some new songs, and maybe they'll make us new people as we come upon the birth of the Savior. Now, I'd like to pray as we begin this short series. And I'm going to be so bold as to pray and to ask God to change us this Christmas season and put a new song in our heart. So, Father, that is our prayer, that you will take these songs that we're about to look at and that you will make these songs our songs, and that you will go into the recesses of our hearts, our relationships, and God, that you will do the painful but peaceful thing of bringing us to where you would have us to be, where you would have them to be, oh God. So we pray you do something special between now and Christmas Eve, and we will give you the glory, for it's in Christ's name we offer it and pray, amen, amen. Well, let's begin. Columbia researcher Sheena Inyengar, I just destroyed that, it's a lot of consonants, a lot of vowels and stuff, so what Inyengar, Sheena, has found that the average person makes about 70 decisions every single day. Now, most of those decisions are not the earth-shattering type of decisions, you know, should I marry him or her, should I take my family and move them across the country, you know, et cetera, take that job. They are mostly the do I wear the brown clogs or the black heels type of decisions, you know, red striped tie or green polka dot one. Don't wear the green polka dot one. That's how a lot of the decisions are, right? Honestly, you know, when you get to work, if you wore the brown clogs, 
It's not going to change your day that much. Ten years from now, you're not going to remember that day. It's not going to set you down a different path. It's really not. We make a lot of decisions like that. And then there are the in-between decisions. These are these life and death decisions. And then there are these decisions that really don't matter. And then there are the in-between decisions. Do I order the chicken salad, which I really don't want, or the big, greasy, but delicious burger and fries, which I really do want for lunch? Now, a single meal isn't going to kill you, but if you eat that every single day, what's going to happen? It will kill you sooner or later. You know, apologies to McDonald's and everybody else who, you know, any, any other representatives that might be here. But sooner or later, you know what, it starts to have an effect on you. It's one of those decisions that, not today, but maybe in a year from now. And, you know, so we have those in-between decisions. But there are some decisions that really will make a big change in our life. Now, I started thinking, I'm really, really bad at math. I've told you that many times. But I took out a calculator this week, and I started carefully calculating this. Now, if you make 70 decisions a day, times 365 days in the year, that's about 25,500 decisions in a year. Now, if you live 70 years, and those of you who are 70, hang on, I'm just, I just picked out a number, that's all. That's about 1,788,500 decisions of varying degrees of importance, which led 20th century philosopher Albert Camus to correctly conclude this. He said, life is the sum of all our choices. Life is the sum of all our choices. So what he was saying, you know, of the 1,788,500 choices they come together, and you know what? They kind of make you who you are. Who you are today is the sum of the decision-making that you have made up to this point. They lead to a life of failure or a life of success or somewhere in the middle. It'll lead you to a life of purpose. Well, maybe you're just playing out the clock. Simeon, the author of the first Christmas song, I think, kind of understood that. And basically, what he found out, I think, is that oftentimes we make decisions, and then those decisions turn around, and they make us. They make us who we are. So Simeon is the man who wrote this first Christmas song that we're going to be looking at. And basically, as I was looking at uh, this passage, have been for weeks now, I look at three decisions he made. Simeon made three decisions in his life that led to a life, well, we're talking about him 2,000 years after he lived and died. So it must have been kind of a significant decision, right? Three significant decisions. They were three decisions that I believe, if we make, will lead to lives of great and infinite worth. In fact, as far as I can tell, any important decision you will ever make will evolve from these three foundational decisions that every person makes, whether they know it or not. The decisions that we're going to look at this morning. If you want to live lives of extreme purpose and blessing, you make these three decisions and you are good to go. So let's get right into it, shall we? Decision number one. Decision number one, he decided and he found out to seek God's righteousness. Seek God's righteousness. Now, let me just set it up a little bit. Eight days after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we know the story, we've seen the movie, as was the custom of the day, Joseph and Mary brought their baby, their firstborn male child, a short walk, kind of just, you know, an hour or so from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem to dedicate him in the temple. Now, they didn't know it at the time, but that very moment, that very morning, 
There was a man who had made his way into the temple courts, an old man hunched over, gray hair, and he, he positioned himself, as he saw them come into the temple courts, he positioned himself so that they'd have to walk smack into him, right into him. He had never met them. In fact, there was every indication to believe that he had never even seen them before or they him. Now, the man Simeon, and I was looking at a number of translations, and in verse 25 it says this. It says this about Simeon. I want to get to know the man a little bit. It says, at this time a man named Simeon was living in Jerusalem, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. A man named Simeon was living in Jerusalem. Here it is. Simeon was a good man. It says that Simeon was a good man, which he was. Now, what a lot of translations do that I don't love is that they take words from the original language, the original Greek, and they kind of put it into the English so that it's very, very understandable and acceptable. And what they did here in this specific case is that they took two distinct Greek words, the word righteous and the word devout, and they condensed it into one word, the word good. Now, it's not a bad thing, they didn't do an evil thing, but it could be, in some cases, a very misleading thing if you're trying to really understand what the man was all about. Now, let me explain. When you say that so-and-so is a good man, so-and-so is a good woman, you might mean something like this. Uh, I saw him mowing the lawn for the single mother who lives next door to him. He does it all the time. What a good man, Right? Or, I saw her bringing a meal over to the family. I know they have a lot of problems in that family. There's a lot, been a lot of sickness. She didn't have to do that. What a good woman. Now, I have to tell you something right now. It's not only a good thing. I think stuff like that is a wonderful thing. I think it's a tremendous thing. But it's not what Luke was saying about Simeon. It's not going to tell you about this man. Luke was not saying that he did good things. He was saying that he made a decision to be good, or better yet, to pursue goodness. Now, the biblical word there that I think is correctly translated in the NIV is righteousness. Now, we don't use that word like, how many times have you used that word in the last week? A hundred times? One time? You, you haven't used it at all. You, you can't even remember the last time you used the word righteousness, except here. Maybe here, you know, you're talking about people, talking to people, and you're quoting, quoting a Bible verse or something like that. It's the only time you ever use it. And the reason we don't use it is because it sounds very similar to self-righteous, doesn't it? I, I get that kind of thing in my mind when I hear the word righteousness. I think, uh, you think self-right, you think arrogant, you think, you know, self-righteous people. Righteousness, as used in Scripture, is talking about something else, though. It's talking about right standing before God. And if you think Luke was saying that Simeon was mostly concerned about going about and doing good things, you would miss the meaning of what was really being said about him. We would miss, really, the meaning of what the man was all about. The little baby that Simeon was blessing in the temple that day was going to grow up to be a man. That man would preach the greatest sermon that was ever preached, which would correct all the misconceptions and put into proper perspective what true rightness or righteousness was and what right standing before God was all about once and for all. The baby grew to be a man, and in Matthew chapter 5, he said in this greatest sermon ever preached, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, anybody hearing those words that day 
Those were very, very sobering words. If you weren't listening, you know how some people are drifting off right now. They listen to me and like, no, 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 it sounds like Charlie Brown. Do you ever see Charlie Brown with the parents? Wah, 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 wah. That's what I sound like right now. But then all of a sudden you snap back and you start listening. If they were kind of drifting off in the sermon that day, all of a sudden this would snap them back. Instantaneously would snap them back. Because these would be kind of, I'm going to go another step. I'm not going to say sobering. I'm going to say depressing. Depressing words, if you heard them preached. If entrance into the kingdom of heaven required, and you can picture this, you know, this guy who's just showing up for the sermon, trying to, you know, he just wants to hear the new, the new rabbi in town. If it required that my righteousness surpass that of the leading religious leaders of the day, I am in trouble. I'm in a world of trouble. Because the Pharisees were most concerned about one thing. They were concerned about moral diligence. And that's what they thought constituted a right standing before the face of God. They were sure, they were absolutely sure that that was the way to be approved before God. Now remember, the the Pharisees were no slouches. We've mentioned it many, many times if you're part of the Crossing Church here. 2,000 years of church history and dozens of Hollywood Jesus movies have us conditioned. When we hear the word Pharisee, we kind of shudder a little bit at the title itself. You know, we we picture them, you know, these hooked noses. They got blood, you know, coming down the the sides of their mouths. You know, these are the worst people. That was not what they thought of back 2,000 years ago. When you heard the word Pharisee 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, it brought words to your mind like admiration, humility, possibly a little bit of fear because they they wielded great power over the culture. But one thing was certain. In a society that had confused outward religious performance with true inner rightness before God, you can only wish to be like them. So if you're listening and you're saying, boy, I want to be like that, but then Jesus starts speaking and says, you have to be better than them. Well, forget about that. See, that's... That's depressing. But the young preacher said that righteousness before God had nothing to do with rules and rituals and regulations. He said that it had to do with a relationship with God. And he said that righteousness was concerned with motives and not just actions. In right attitudes and not just religious acts. So when Luke tells us that this man, Simeon, was righteous and devout, like in the words of the great sermonizer who preached that great sermon, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he meant that they were to live a life that was pleasing before God and to seek to be an instrument of his righteousness in the lives of everybody who came by your way. And there was only one way to do that, he said, and that was to get a new heart. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of that day, when people would get a new heart, when God would take the old heart and replace it with a new heart, way, way in the future. And Jeremiah said this. He said, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So when some people describe Simeon as good, this is my great fear. I'm afraid that some people will fall into the trap of thinking of him as one who thought that right standing before God compromised outward standards. That he had this understanding of sin and virtue as something completely external, something completely focused on behavior and violation thereof, of keeping rules, of keeping regulations. See, many think of good as external and not internal. But the righteousness that the preacher was talking about was one that changed the character of a person 
and brought about a new heart. So Jesus comes along later in his life, and he said that God required a different kind of righteousness to be approved in order to be right before the Father. Put another way, what Jesus was saying was that, you know what? If you desire God's approval, who you are is much more important than what you do. And you know what? Jesus was bothered by those who went through the motions of righteousness. He really was. But it wasn't the Pharisees only who have that problem. We have that problem. We have the problem all the time. You know what? You're raised in a religious home. You heard all the jargon. Maybe you went to a Christian school. You went to Sunday school. You get it. People ask you, you know, tell me about your faith. You could, you could tell a story. But then all of a sudden you grow up in this Christian home and you go out to college and all of a sudden you find out, even though you knew the lingo, even though you know the stories, even though you know how to answer on command, that your faith was really not your faith. That your faith was the faith of your church or the faith of your parents or the faith of some significant other. And you have been living with their faith your entire life. And the first time there's a party at the fraternity or the sorority house, your heart begins to reveal itself. What's really, really in there. Folks, if our righteousness depends on family ethics church morals, or societal restraints and values, when those restraints and constraints are blown away, you start gravitating toward the dark side. Because the heart, the Bible says what about the heart? It is desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. If you look at what's happening in our country today, you look at what happened this past week in California, the moral restraints have been disregarded, so what is really in the heart is now free to come out. It's free to act out. We had generations and generations who gained literally a sense of well-being based not exclusively, but in large measure on mimicking righteousness across society. If it looked good on the outside, it was good. Now, when society's rules change and all of a sudden, you know, those moral bearings, those general moral bearings that are out there are kicked away, what's going on in the human heart comes out. And there is murder and there is mayhem because the Bible says the heart is what? Desperately wicked. See, Simeon knew better. He knew better. He was a man who knew that a right standing with God went deeper than only his external actions. And because of that, he purposely groomed his inner life. Therefore, in verse 22, Five of Luke chapter 2, it said that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit giving him special insight, working with him, using him, confiding in him in ways that those whose understanding of rightness before God is merely external never, ever get and never understand. Simeon understood the spiritual nature of things in ways that most others didn't. Because the Spirit of God was upon him. Listen, his first decision. His first decision was to pursue inner righteousness before God. That was his first decision. We make decisions, and those decisions turn around and make us. Now, there's a problem. He makes this decision. You know what? I want to be right before God. I want inner goodness. I get it. I know it's not external only. It's what's coming from the inside. There's a problem. 
When you come to accept that a right standing before God goes deeper than mere externals, and God begins to work on your heart, and you begin to look deeply into your heart, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> what's going to happen to you is what happened to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the holiest men on the face of the earth, and all of a sudden, he sees the glory of the Lord, he sees the holiness of God, and it says he had already started his ministry, by the way, because what I'm about to read is from chapter 6. So he's already telling people, do this, do that, God's saying this, God's saying that, Right? And he says in chapter 6, he says, Woe is me, this is after he sees the holiness of God, Woe is me, because I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, he sees the holiness of God, and you know what his first reaction is? I'm dead. Dig the hole. Bury me now. No hope for me. Listen. When you make a decision to pursue rightness, righteousness before God, the first thing that will happen is that you will be destroyed by the understanding of how far, how really far you are from God Almighty. You're not going to be comforted. You know what you're going to be? You're going to be wrecked. You will be wrecked. And you know what happens to wrecked people? You know what they do? They go into mourning. And you're going to be left with the same question as the Philippian jailer who was only all too aware of his sinfulness. Remember in the book of Acts, they're singing at night, Paul and Silas, they beat him up, they tortured him, they're they're leaning up against the bricks in that prison, chained to the wall, and they're singing hymns. These guys are singing hymns. And this jailer who must have heard the gospel at some point before, must have heard something of the sweetness of the Savior, all of a sudden When the earthquake happens and the chains all fall off, his first reaction is not, hey, kill everybody. His first reaction is to run into their cell, fall before his knees before them, and say what? What must I do to be saved? See, that's his first reaction. That's what happened to him, and that's going to be our first reaction. That will be our first reaction when we are faced with our own sinfulness before a holy God. Now, there were many people in Israel at this time who were coming face-to-face with their own sin. How do I know that? Well, they were asking the same questions that Simeon were asking. And Simeon, like so many others in verse 25, was waiting for something. You know what he was waiting for, it says, in verse 25 of Luke 2? He was waiting for, it says, the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Consolation. You know what it means literally? The word literally means calling one to your side, calling someone to be by your side. For what reason? Well, when I am grieving, when I am mourning, what do you want to do? What do you need? I need someone to come to me and give me encouragement and alleviate my grief. When you are grieving over your sins and you desperately need encouragement, the first thing you do is to reach out. Look for a friendly face. Look for somebody who, maybe even an easy mark. They're going to tell you, you're great. You know, go to your mother, somebody like that. And, uh, you know, mom, you know, I'm really, oh, you're the, oh, you kidding. You're wonderful. You know, oh, good. At least it may be false. It may be phony, but at least I'm hearing it. See, that's what we want to do. We reach out to hear something good and positive and someone who somehow, even if it's phony and fake, relieve our grief. Because when you are grieving over your sins, you desperately need encouragement. Your reaction is always to reach out for help. You need to have the sting of grief alleviated. So where do you go for encouragement? 
Where do you go to get the grief taken away? Where do you get consolation? Someone to come near you, maybe, and offer these things. Well, let me tell you where the world tells us we go. The world understands grief, understands the need for encouragement, all that thing, but they don't believe that you reach out. The world is telling us to reach in, to make a decision, to get away from the archaic understanding of rightness that maybe you were taught in Sunday school and stuff like this. See, what they say is we need new rules to live by. You need to find peace with yourself. That is the most important thing. How many times have you heard that? You know, oh, I'm at peace with myself. Oh, that's great. You know, that's, you're living a life that, you know what, if my daughter was living, I'd jump off a bridge. But you know what, at least you're, you're, you're at peace with yourself. That's a good thing. We hear that all the time, right? We hear it all the time. The reason you have inner conflict is because you are trying to follow rules made by men, they say. Men from a bygone era, don't worry about what some antiquated group of supposed holy writings say about your condition. There is a new normal in town now. There is a new standard. Don't be weak and reveal your weakness by reaching out. Reach inside. Gather your strength. Don't be weak. Be strong. You have it inside of you. There is a new standard. Make some new rules. Make new rules. Now, I'm not sure anyone would disagree with the fact that, well, maybe there are, but I'm, I'm going to assume that most of us here are, would not disagree with the fact that there has been a seismic shift in rules in our society over the past 20 to 30 years. Would you say that, kind of, maybe? Yeah, okay. I think there has been. If new rules bring about the peace and consolation that we are so desperately looking for, we should be the happiest culture on the planet. We really should. What do you think? How's that working out? How's that working out in the U.S.? Not too good. Went to a conference yesterday. One of the people speaking who has knowledge of the pharmaceutical industry said that if you knew how many people need to be medicated to get through a normal day, it would absolutely blow your mind. I'm not convinced that making new rules is the answer to finding consolation. See, I'm not convinced. But the world says it is. Some say the answer is to eliminate all rules. Not make new rules, but, you know, we got too many rules. We need no rules. Just work on yourself. Read one of the hundred or so self-help books, you know, by this doctor and that one, and the guy on, on 4 o'clock that's on Channel 4, whatever you got to do. Go to Barnes & Noble, begin working on yourself. You're good. I'm good. You know what? How can anybody really say what is right and wrong? Anyway, live and let live. See, that's their mantra. We don't need any rules. Find your own way. But you know what? That never alleviates our inner grief. Yeah, go ahead and read another book. Yeah. Right. Read another book. Listen to another lecture, or what a lot of people are doing, just give up. See, just give up. Learn to live with and in your personal hell. See, that's what a lot of people are doing. But there's another way. There was another way. Simeon sings a song that in effect, in effect says this. There is only one way up. There is only one way to embrace the consolation and the comfort that we seek. And you know which way that is? Down. Going down. It's by embracing the fact that I cannot clean up my inner self no matter how many rules I follow or how much mental shifting I do. 
He came to the conclusion that he was a sinner, and he embraced the grief that comes to anyone who truly seeks to be right before God. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. He said, blessed are those who what? For they will be in that order. In that order. Which brings us to the second and the most important decision Simeon made as reflected in his song. Seek God's righteousness and then accept God's relief. Simeon had waited patiently for years. He had waited patiently for years. God had told him when he was a younger man that, you know what? You're going to see my salvation. You're not going to die. You know, very few people get this. You're not going to die until you see my salvation. And now the day was there. The same spirit of God that had told him that he would not see death until he saw God's salvation, that day, I don't know if it was a Monday, Thursday, Wednesday, you know, I'm not sure. But I know they, the spirit of God said to him, get ready. I promised you that you would see God's salvation. Here it comes. Here comes the one who would bring consolation to a nation of mourning individuals. Today was the day. So the spirit said to him, go stand in the court of the temple. And this day, you're going to come eyeball to eyeball with the Messiah that all the nation has waited for for hundreds of years who will finally and forever give you relief. And so slowly, I just, you know, I try to picture these things. Every scripture, you just try to, you try to get the movie version of it, exactly how this thing works. I, I just picture Simeon very slowly at first, you know, with halting steps, making his way to this approaching beautiful young couple. She's 15, maybe he's 18, somewhere with his little seven-pound, six-ounce baby in there. And he gets in front of them. And because of the crush of people, they don't even see him coming. They just, you know, they're just walking, they're going through, and you know, he comes up to them, and he's smiling like this, he's got a little, little baked bean teeth, and his breath is like stinky, and the guy, you know, he stinks, and his hair, he has another haircut, and he's sitting there, and he starts to talk to them. And the emotion, I just picture the emotion of years and years of waiting being almost too much to contain. And I see him steadying himself and taking a deep breath and gingerly reaching out to take that baby in his arms to bless it. What a, what a moment. Yesterday, I went to see my dad, his 87th birthday. And my sister and my two sisters and their families were there. And my niece had a little baby who was born with significant challenges. Russell Silver, it's called, and she's very, very small, very small, and going to have issues. And I took that baby in my arms before everybody. And I held her, and we prayed. See, we prayed a blessing on this child, that this child would be special that she would come to know Jesus early, that as people saw her, they would not see her handicapped, but they would see the God who takes the weak and makes them strong. See, that's what we prayed. And so Simeon takes this little baby in his arms, and they, you know, they're handing their baby over to a stranger. You know, just, uh, I'm not doing it. I don't know about you, but, you know, this guy's usually looking like that. I'm not, I'm not handing it over to him, right? 
And Mary gently gives her baby to this man. And he starts to sing. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And he sings. Here was the one who would bring consolation that a heart that mourns so desperately needed. Here was the one who would eliminate the need of all the sacrifices that were being offered just a few feet to their left. Eliminate them. God made a way where there was no way. We couldn't reach up to him, so he reached down to us. And in his great love, he sent his son to shed light upon the darkness of the human race. What we saw in California this past week or in Newtown, Connecticut, or in the Middle East is only a reflection of the deep darkness of the human condition. The blood of bulls and goats covered over sin with a thin veneer of rules and regulations. They covered over the darkness of the heart with a very thin, happy face, but only Jesus can make a desperate heart new. And Simeon knew instantly here in his arms was the hope of the nation, was the hope of the world. See, of the three decisions he made, this was the biggest one. To recognize this little child as what? The savior of the world. The one who had been talked about for generations. Folks, we make decisions. And then those decisions turn around. And they make us. And he did something else. <laughs> Decision number three, get ready to be rattled. And he prepared himself. So Mary and Joseph are listening. They're listening. They're hearing this thing. You know, this guy's singing. Eh, he's a little off key, but that's okay, right? Because the words are so great. The words are so great. So he hears them singing, and they are just bursting with joy. It's like if you know, you're coming out of, say, Barnabas Hospital with your day-old child or something, and somebody comes up to you and says, the Lord's giving me a word. This child's going to be president of the United States in 45 years. And you, let's say you believed them. Man, oh, man, you're walking on air, right? President of the United States, come on. This is, and, and before them was somebody even greater, much greater. It was the Messiah, the one who would save the world. And they are just, you know, I don't even think their feet were touching the ground at this point. They were given charge of the one whom the prophets had spoken about. It was almost too much to believe that after blessing the child with his rendering blessing, he hands the child back to Mary. And she gently thanks. You can just picture, right? Little little 15-year-old, right? Just, all this stuff is happening to her, right? Thank you. Thank you so much. Back to Mary and Joseph. And he looks at them, and they could tell by the expression on his face, he ain't done. See, he's got another blessing still left. There was still, there was still something else coming. So when somebody just did that and told him that, you know, hey, you get to save the world. Hey, another blessing, bring it on, baby. Whatever you got, I'm, we're here. We're not going anywhere. We've got nothing to do right now. So they did what anybody who received the former blessing did in those days. They positioned themselves in front of him, and he placed his hands, is Joseph and Mary, and he places his hands on Mary, who's holding this baby, and he begins again, and he says this. 
He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And you can almost see their beaming smiles turn instantly to frowns, right? It's like, uh, okay, too, you know, too bad he didn't stop when he was ahead. Now he... You know, just terrible, terrible message. And you know why? Smiles with the frowns? Because they understood what he was telling them. He was telling them that this child of theirs, sent by God, who was going to bring light and peace, but it was going to be a light and peace brought about through incredible conflict, both outside and inside. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, the Bible tells us Jesus Christ came at Christmas time to stake out a claim, an enormous claim. He has staked out every inch of the physical universe, every inch of the spiritual universe, every inch of the mental universe, every inch of your and mine lives, our lives and hearts, and he has claimed it as his own. He stakes it out and he says, mine, every inch, mine. Therefore, it's very clear he comes to divide. He comes to cause conflict. He comes, I love this, he comes to pick a fight. He comes to pick a fight. See, Christmas is the day that God came to pick a fight. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus came to bring peace and consolation to the hearts of men and women, and he does so by deliberately picking a fight. In June of 1944, with the world reeling from the destruction brought on it by the evil axis of powers, how did the final push to rid the world of the darkness that had developed it begin? How did it start? Well, it began by hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers making their way across the English Channel in stormy seas to the beaches in France. Gold, Juno, Normandy. We know these names very well now. And there was blood before they ever got off the transports for many of them. And there was death, and there was conflict, and there was enormous sacrifice. That's how the peace of the world was won. That's how the world was rid of darkness. How does a surgeon bring peace to a body dying from cancer? You know what he does? He cuts it open. And there's blood, and there's gore. That's the only way your body's ever going to find peace. It's the only way. Now listen. If you decide to embrace the salvation that God's Son brings you, you need to know that you're about to have your cage rattled because there will be conflict. Nobody gets to stay in the middle when it comes to Jesus' claims. You may think you're in the middle, but you're not. And you know what? He's going to shove you down or he's going to shove you up. There's going to be all kinds of suffering. There's going to be relational suffering. And Jesus is the one that's pushing. Look at his teachings. This is what Jesus said. He says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, on judgment day, whether you rise or fall, whether you go to heaven or you are cast down into hell, he said, all depends on whether you know me or love me. That's quite a claim, wouldn't you say? Not a lot of middle ground there, you know, just really stark. What a claim. He says, the one who believes in me is not condemned. The one who does not believe in me is already condemned. That's Jesus' story. That's about as in your face as you can get, right? You know, I would never be that stark. I'd, I'd be afraid of turning people off, right? Jesus was right in your face. 
when he talked to the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10? Basically, he said this to the rich young ruler. He says, he says look, let's get to the main point, all right? Uh, let's forget the small talk right now. Uh, I know what you need. He says, I have to be more important to you than your wealth. I have to be more important to you than anyone or anything else, or you will be lost for eternity. See, that's what he said. You know what Jesus says? Read the Gospels. Read the account of his life. He says, I am so important that if your eye causes you to keep you out of the kingdom, remove your eye. If your hand is going to keep you from eternity in heaven, cut it off. It's not worth it. Because if you have me, you have everything. And if you don't have me, you will be like the chaff blown on the wind that blows away forever. Jesus was saying that there really is no middle ground. And yet that's exactly where everybody wants to live. Everybody wants to live in the middle ground. Most people are, you know, most people are kind of, you know, kind of happy. They're okay. Uh, they're moderately religious. Moderation is really, that's really the byword, isn't it, of today? You know, moderation, moderation, you know, everything. How do you account for that? Here's how you account for that. Why, why does everybody want to be in the middle? Everyone wants to be in the middle is because they don't really know who the real Jesus is. The only reason they're in the middle is because they don't get it. Their Jesus is a fabrication. Their Jesus is an idol that they have constructed. There's no evidence for such a person in Scripture. None at all. Not one shred of historical evidence for it. See, is your Jesus the one who says, I did not come to bring peace on the earth but a sword. I have come to set the earth on fire. Is your Jesus one who polarizes? Is your Jesus the one who makes people rise and fall but allows no one to remain in between? See, if that's your Jesus, you got the right Jesus. When you preach that message to people, guess what? You're going to rattle cages. <laughs> but in the long run, you got to know this. As the cages are being rattled, it is the only way for people to find peace. It's the only way. Relationships suffer if you follow Jesus. You know what's going to suffer also? Your soul. Your soul is going to suffer. You know why? Because the way of the cross is the way of repentance. One word, repentance. It's a sword to the soul, but it's the only way to personal peace. What is repentance? You know, what is it? Uh, basically, it's admitting you've done wrong. Yes, but it's more than that. Basically, it's saying that I have a selfish, sinful heart. Yes, but it's more than that. See, Repentance alone doesn't give you the power to change. You need the power to change. Our only hope is the sheer mercy of God. That is our only hope. And so when, when somebody comes to you and says, you need to repent, how does that make you feel? I've got to tell you how most people feel about that. It makes them feel squeamish. It makes them feel weird. Uh, you know, people start to shift in their seats because repentance is hard. Repentance is painful. Repentance is difficult. It is the only way to peace with God. The sword of repentance is not wielded by a warrior, but it's wielded, and take comfort in this, by a tender, loving, compassionate surgeon. That's who wields it. Repentance has a sting, but it's like the sting of antiseptic. The only way to get that peace is to let the sword come in and go through you, and it will sting Real Christian repentance always brings healing, though. After the sting, there comes healing, and there comes peace, and there comes joy, and there comes consolation, and a right standing 
in front of God Almighty. Maybe not in the next two minutes or the next three days. But you know what? When the sting subsides, it's coming. When Simeon said to Mary, Simeon looked at her and said, you know what? A sword is going to go through your own soul. A sword will go straight through your own soul. What if Mary had said, think about this, sword. I don't want a sword. Are you kidding me? I don't have a baby. I don't want any of that nonsense. I, you know, we're going to try to make things as easy as possible. You know, we're going to get married, blah, blah. We're going to have a home. We've got a nice place. He's got a good business, you know? We're going we're to try to make it as easy as possible. What if she had said that? I don't want a sword. I don't want peace that way. Where would you be? Where would I be? Right? Jesus. What if Jesus in the garden said, all right, you know what? Time out. It's been good up till now, the raising the dead, miracles, all that jazz, good stuff. I'm getting off here. This is where I get off. No sword through my soul. Folks, if he hadn't decided to follow the word of his father and trust his father and heal our scars, we would be lost. So don't shrink back. Follow. Follow him to peace and consolation that your soul desperately cries for. Listen, we make decisions. Then those decisions turn around, and they make us. When you decide to seek rightness before God, when you decide to accept his relief by trusting in his son, that he has paid the penalty for every sin that you have committed or ever will, when we decide to come to that understanding that, you know what? We follow him. We're going to rattle some cages. Our cages are going to be rattled. You will live successfully before God, and you will be a blessing to everyone around you. And all your lesser decisions that you make that undo so many others will end up making you. See, we make decisions, and then those decisions turn around. <laughs> 